Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. You'll find it in your Pew Bible on page 848. My name is Laurie Morris. I'm a member here at MPC. I serve on our Life Ministry Steering Committee and with Embrace Grace and our worship team. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, and let me welcome you once more, those of you here in our sanctuary those of you joining us down in the fellowship hall, and an especially warm welcome to friends and family uh, joining us there in Fairfax. We launched our Fairfax site a little over six months ago, and some of you may have joined us since then, and so you're wondering who in the world I am. I am uh, the site pastor of Capital Press Fairfax. My name is Rob Yancey, I would love to enjoy, uh, invite you to come join us down uh, for worship there sometime. Um, it, it, we would love to have you. Uh, it's one of the safest places that you can worship because we're right across the street from uh, Nova Fairfax Hospital. And we have something like 2,000 parking spaces. So, you know, I'm just saying, uh, you could come visit us down there. Um, we also have a really special escalator that you just kind of have to see to believe. So come down there, check us out. If you have friends in Fairfax, we'd love for you to invite them to join us as well. I'm also excited this morning to, to preach from God's word. We're continuing on in our series, Answer the King, and we're taking a bit of a turn where we're looking at um, what the Christian life looks like. We, we've, we've been talking about what it means to discover grace, and now we're going to be looking at what it means to apply this grace to, to every area of our life, for every age and every stage. What does it mean to live in light of grace? Now imagine um, when many of us open up to Mark chapter 12 and step into the passage that we read this morning, we are stepping into some significantly unfamiliar territory, right? Like th this seems quite strange. We don't know these people, the Sadducees, I would imagine for most of us, and this story seems 
weird, right? Um, uh, I can imagine some of us are like, listen, I'm just trying to get here somewhere close to on time with like my shoes matching and my kids' shoes matching. And I come here and there's this story about like a wife that marries seven brothers. Like what, what in the world is going on, right? Or maybe you're like, really? This, this is the Sunday I invited a friend to come and like really this, <laughs> this is the passage that we're gonna preach on. Um, and, and while this story and these people are seemingly strange, I wanna let you know that what's going on behind the scenes, what, what's behind this story and, and the questions that the Sadducees ask is something that's really part of our everyday reality. You see the Sadducees, they're trying to embarrass and to shame Jesus. They're trying to make him uh, and his teaching look foolish, right? And, and we know something of people who try to embarrass and shame, right? We, we live in a, a city full of politicians that spend copious amount of times trying to embarrass and shame people on the, the other side of the aisle, if you're a kid in here who has ever ridden the bus, right? We called it riding the cheese when I was growing up. If you've ever ridden the bus, you know that on the bus, oftentimes other kids try to embarrass and shame other kids. It's part of everyday reality, riding the bus. Athletes, right? Sometimes they take to Twitter to try to embarrass and shame other athletes. We had a baseball player that used to play for our uh, team here in, in D.C., and one time he was asked a question that he thought uh, was trying to, to embarrass him or make him look silly. And do you remember how he responded to that question? So that's a clown question, bro. Right? And, and in some ways, that's how we see Jesus responding to the Sadducees. He realizes that they're trying to clown him and his teaching. And so we see his response so if it helps you to have a roadmap or an outline for this morning's message, we're going we're gonna to look at the context a bit, get a better feel for these people and, and, and what they believed. And then we're going to look at the questions that Jesus asked them, and then we're going to finish with some questions to ask ourselves. So context, questions that Jesus asked, and some questions to ask ourselves. But before we talk about any of that, let's ask God to, to meet with us and speak to us. Mighty and merciful Father, would you help us to see this morning? Would you open our eyes and fix them upon your Son? Open eyes this morning that, that maybe have never seen the light of your grace. Would you transfix the gaze of those whose eyes may have drifted to lesser things and looking for life and satisfaction? Turn our eyes back to our Savior for this pastor and for these, your people, we come to you now and say, we wish to see Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you understand the Sadducees, then you understand the story they tell. And if you understand the story they tell, you see why Jesus responds the way that he responds. Right out the gate uh, in the first verse of our passage, uh, you can tell that Mark knows you need some context because he introduces the Sadducees and then straight away he says that they are those who say that there is no resurrection. All right, culturally speaking, the Sadducees were... Um, the upper echelon of society. They were the elite. 
They were the well-educated. They held significant sway and influence in the religious community. Um, The first century historian Josephus said that uh, that there were those among them who were wealthy and men of rank. Right, so that's that's a little bit about their societal standing, and and then let's look again at this resurrection thing that Mark says. There's some helpful things that you need to know about them when it comes to their theology. Mark says they didn't believe in the resurrection. You also need um, to know that they really had no place for the sovereignty of God. That they affirmed the human free will and human free will alone. And we, we read, Luke writes in Acts 23, that not only did they not believe in the resurrection, but they didn't believe in angels or the spirit. And, and when it came to the scriptures and the Sadducees, they only, they only took the first five books of the Old Testament as the word of God. They didn't consider the writings or the prophets or any of that stuff to be God's word. They only believed in the Torah. They only treated the Torah as the word of God. And so that helps you to get a bit of where they're coming to fill the picture in. And then we look at verses 19 through 23. Um, and we see there that what they want to do to begin with, with Jesus is agree upon this premise. Right? They, they want to find some common ground with him. And so they come up to him and say, hey, teacher, you, you know that Moses taught. And now you can see why they talk about Moses, right? We, we know that Moses taught that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. It's a principle known as leveret marriage. If you want to read more about it, you can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And again, you're like, okay, that, that still seems weird. That seems strange. What's going on there? You, you must remember, they live in a world without safety nets, right? Okay, there's, there's no life insurance. There's no social security. There's no disability. It's not like if a woman's husband passes away, she can go even get a job and make it on her own. This is a law that's in God's word so that in this ancient society, a family's wealth and a family's legacy can continue to live on even if the husband passes away. And so they've, they've laid out this portion of law. They, Jesus, you know this is what Moses said. And then they start to construct this, this hypothetical situation. Right? It's quite the story. And they say, listen, there was a woman who, who married her husband and they didn't have a kid, and, they, and then he passed away, and then she married his brother, and they didn't have any wee ones, as some like to say, and uh, he passed away, and, 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 and the story goes on, and the way my mind works, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, you know, by the fifth brother, surely the guy's going to say, wait a second, right? Like, this lady has taken out four of my brothers. What in the world is going on? Are we sure about this? Uh, Let's launch an investigation. Um, But that's not how this contrived story goes. Uh, she, She makes her way through seven husbands, no offspring, and finally she dies herself. And then in verse 23 comes their question. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For she, for the seven had her as a wife. Remember, they don't believe in in the resurrection. Right. Um, this could have very well been one of their stock arguments, 
right, that they kind of pull out when they want to make this idea of the resurrection to look silly. No doubt they thought they had smugly kind of won the argument. They were ready to drop the mic. Because really behind this question was just the desire to uh, make this idea of the resurrection and to make what they thought was this lightweight country preacher look silly, look foolish. Their intent was to embarrass and shame. So we've looked at the Sadducees, we've looked at their story, their question, and so let's, let's see what questions Jesus has for them. Remember, our series is Answer the King, and so we're looking at the questions that Jesus asked. Um, it should be noted, when they ask Jesus a question, what does he do? He asks them a question back, and we're going to talk about that in just a bit. And here's his question. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Friends, this isn't your teddy bear, Mr. Rogers, kumbaya, Jesus response, right? This is a forceful and devastating blow. This was the well-educated religious aristocracy that prided themselves on the fact that they did know the word of God, that they did know the scriptures, and that they did know the power of God. Jesus could not have been more forceful in this, this question that he asked them back. It is akin to saying, well, um, those on Wall Street are wrong because they know nothing of finance. Or those on K Street are wrong because they know nothing of the legal system. Or those in the Pentagon or the intelligence community are wrong because they know nothing about national defense. He had gone after them at their strength and said, actually, you don't know anything. He doesn't give him time to answer his uh, shocking question. And even if he did, what in the world are they going to say? Right? He immediately helps them see how they've made some wrong assumptions and they've missed some things in God's word. Let's start with a wrong assumption, particularly about heaven. They've made this wrong assumption that was, was popular then and it's actually popular now that, that heaven is basically going to be an extension or a continuance of, of earthly conditions just a, a little better or a little more glorious. Uh, and Jesus helps them see, no, uh, when they rise from the dead, that is these people in your story, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus says when it comes to heaven, there are new categories and there are new dynamics. Yes, there is some continuance. I will still be Robin. You will still be you. But there are going to be some things that are different. And he says marriage is one of those things. You should remember that marriage is a pointer to a true and greater union. Now, I imagine for some of you, like when you first heard this in the scripture reading, you have not stopped thinking about it, right? Like you actually haven't even heard a word I've said up until this point, because you're like, what in the world? You're like, uh, I kind of like my wife or my husband. And like, I really enjoy being married. Praise God, right? That's a good thing. Uh, maybe some of you are like, I kind of like that idea that there's not marriage in heaven. Maybe that's it. Uh, if that's the case, we would love to talk to you, all right? Um, 
The power of God can change that. Um, you're like, I, I can't imagine heaven without being married, to which I would suggest we, we might want to consider whether or not we should let our ma- imagination be our guide and our standard. We should remember when Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he actually quotes Isaiah, he says, no eye has seen nor, no, nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We, we do know this, that we will experience in full and final ways uh, our marriage and our union to Christ in heaven. We do know this, that there will be relationships in heaven and there will not be a hint or a tinge of sin or shame that touches any of them. Heaven will be different, but it will be infinitely better. And we need to trust that. Listen, this, this isn't a sermon on uh, marriage in heaven. I'm sorry if you were looking for that uh, or if you're going to have wings in heaven uh, because that's not the main point of this text. That's not the main point. Jesus isn't giving the Sadducees some instructions on the dynamics of heaven. What Jesus is doing when he responds to them and with his questions is saying, again, you have no idea what you're talking about and you shouldn't presume to. If you want more resources on this topic, we have put them on our website. So if you're like, I got all kinds of questions now, go to our website. We have resources on marriage in heaven. Jesus moves on, uh, and then he's got another stinging question for them. Have you not read? Right? That's got to hurt, right? These are guys that had read. But he says, okay, you want to talk about Moses? Let's talk about Moses. All right, you know, you know the part Moses was there with the bush and, and how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. This is what Jesus is getting at here, all right? He's saying, the great I am doesn't say to Moses, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He says, I am the God. Right, Jesus is making clear that the living God is God of living people. All right, that, that, that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are very much still alive. Even here, that, that Jesus is saying, even when God is talking to Moses, hundreds of years after these guys had died their earthly death, they are very much still alive. And this language would have reminded them too that. Uh, God made covenants with these men, promises with these men. And if these men are dead and gone and to be no more, then those promises and those covenants, well, they were for decades or maybe for centuries. But Jesus is making clear, God makes these promises um, not for decades, but forever. So these people are very much still alive. Jesus makes it clear with these couple of questions that... um, The Sadducees on this day didn't just simply stumble up on some country bumpkin, right? They have come face to face with the king of heaven. And he has let them know that they have no idea about the scriptures or the power of God. They might be, you know, part of the religious elite. They might have shown up at all the services. They might have known all the songs, 
But according to the king of heaven, they, they have missed what the scriptures are pointing to and the power of God. And so looking at our context, looking at these questions of Jesus, uh, it would behoove us to ask some questions of ourselves as we wrap up here, considering this portion of the scriptures, that we examine ourselves because the Sadducees obviously were blind. And we want to make sure that we don't suffer from that same lack of vision. So a few questions for us. First question for those who are still investigating Christianity. Maybe you're still checking this thing out. Maybe you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ. We're glad that you're here this morning. Um, Ask yourself, what is often behind my questions and objections to Christianity? Nothing wrong with questions and objections, but is, is what, what's behind them? Do I really just kind of want to shame and embarrass? Do I really just kind of want to clown Jesus and his followers when I bring up these questions and objections? And I can ask that question um, with um, full integrity and with zero uh, sense of reservation because I am guilty of doing that very thing. All right? Uh, I can remember clear as day as a high school student when the guys on my basketball team said, Rob, you ain't saved. Oh, you need to be saved, you know? Um, And at the time, I was this uh, ardent agnostic that wanted nothing to do with Christianity. And I can remember we were at this AAU tournament. We were in our hotel room. And I said to them, "Uh, guys, can you you even uh, tell me how long the intertestamental period was? Right? And like, I had zero desire for new information to make a faith decision. That, the only thing behind that question was to make them feel stupid and insecure and to stop asking me or talking to me about Jesus. Such a jerk, right? Like, but I just, I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to hear it anymore. I just wanted to clown them and make them look silly. Thankfully, God in his grace pursues jerks. Um, Maybe you're here this morning because you're interested in a girl. Maybe you're here this morning because you just do it to make your marriage work and this really isn't your thing. And I would just ask you though, when you do bring up your objections to the faith, when you, when you do bring up your questions, um, what's behind it? And if, you ha- and if you do often stiff arm and bring these things up in a way to ridicule and to shame, would you consider laying that down? And sincerely seeking, seek to hear what Jesus has to say. Look what he's done. We believe that he lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die, so that we might have an eternal relationship with a loving father. Question number two. It's related, and it'll be a little shorter. All right, here's a question to ask yourself. Question number two. When asked about my faith, do I primarily respond hastily with my best answer without asking questions myself? All right, I said I would come back to this. Every time I preach on a passage where we see Jesus answering a question with a question, I want to make this point because I think it needs to become reflexive for Christians. That when someone asks us a question, we learn that it's okay not to answer right away. All right, whether we're at the college campus or whether we're at a family function or in the workplace, we get this question and often we feel pressure and we're like, just give this hasty answer. We can take a breath. We can relax. We can realize that baked into many people's questions are all kinds of assumptions 
and experiences and, and um, presumptions that in some ways require more faith than, than Christianity to believe. And so it's okay for us to relax and return with some questions and, and ask those questions. If you're like, I don't know how to do that, all right? Uh, I also, every time I bring up this point, recommend one of our members' book, Randy Newman, Questioning Evangelism. We have it uh, here. We have it in Fairfax. Amazon has it. You know, like you can get it pretty easy. I would encourage you to read that book. Final question. Do I know the Scriptures and the power of God? I think we should ask ourselves that question. You know, we read stories like this. And really all stories that we read, we want to kind of insert ourselves. We want to identify uh, with someone or something in the story. And so we come to this story and hopefully you don't identify with Jesus. If you do, we'll talk. Uh, but, uh, uh, and you probably don't want to identify um, with the Sadducees. So what you kind of like to do is think, well, I'm an onlooker here. Like I would be one of the people standing around like, yeah, get him, Jesus. That's all right. But I got, bad, I got bad news for you. You and me, we're the Sadducees. And you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Well, what do you mean I'm the Sadducees? Because you see the Sadducees problem, the problem of knowing neither the Scriptures nor the power of God, that's the human problem, right? That was the first human's problem. Adam and Eve got into what they got into because they knew neither the Scripture. They knew neither God's Word, what He said. They didn't pay attention to it, and they didn't trust in the goodness and His power. That's what got them into trouble. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those guys that we talked about earlier, a few times in their life where they didn't seem to know God's Word or His power. Really, all of the nation of Israel, their whole history is a story of a gracious God that pursues them again and again, even though they have an unfathomable capacity to forget God's word and his power. And it doesn't get any better in the New Testament with the disciples. And frankly, it doesn't get any better with you and with me. Again and again, we look at our life and we see there are times where we just simply don't live like we know the scriptures or the power of God. And my instinct as a pastor is to say, all right, well, we need to read the Bible. You need to read the Bible, right? But then I put myself there where you're sitting and I go, oh, Really? The pastor's telling us to read the Bible again. I never thought of that. You know, like I've been reading Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass all this time. And maybe if I would have just read the Bible, I know we know to read the Bible, but sometimes I think the way that we approach it uh, is what's deficient. We approach it like it's the assignment from our cosmic teacher, right? We approach it like it's the task to check off from our heavenly taskmaster. Uh, it is uh, the words <laughs> of our creator and king and father to you and to me. It's not giving it to us because uh, at the end of our days, there's going to be some kind of exam on its content, all right? That's not why he gave us his word. He gave it to us because sometimes you walk into high school and there's just a kid who's a punk, Right? And, and as a believer, you need to know what to do. You need to know, like, hey, how do I not return evil for evil, but how do I stand up for myself, and how do I know that God can give me peace and he's right here with me? That's why we need to know the, the scriptures and the power of God, because sometimes you're in a meeting and you want to bring up an objection 
or a concern. And you can either do that in a way that dishonors God and dishonors everyone around you, or you can do it in a way that honors God and everyone. And to do that, you need to know scriptures and and that the power of God can actually, believe it or not, give self-control to your tongue and what you say. Sometimes um, there's this guy or this girl and they're cute. And miracle of all miracles, they actually seem interested in you, right? And, and you're talking to them, but, but you start to realize, like, they do not share your faith in Jesus. Jesus is not the foundation of their life or how they make decisions. And at that time, you need to know God's word and God's power and God's goodness. I think sometimes many of us, need to, to stop living life like it's some kind of escape room, right? Like, like we're trying to make our way through it and we believe that there's been some enigmatic clues spread all around that we're left to find and figure out, uh, kind of left to our own devices before the time runs out. We have a good father who has given us his word and who has shown us his power and we do not need to leave, uh, live this life confused or without knowledge. You know, we, um, it, it's in the air that we breathe, kind of the gospel of our day and age is this expressive individualism that would tell you and me that all I need to know about life and how to live it is found inside here. And I just want to let you know that is absolutely not true and will not lead you to life. You will only find life if you know the scriptures and the power of God, specifically as they point to Jesus Christ. We have community groups. We have our adult education. We have men's groups, women's groups, youth groups. If you're not in these, why in the world not? What are you doing with your life? All right. Um, these, these are groups that aren't meant to be another thing to check off, another social club, but they're where you come to know the word of God, the power of God, and how it influences every area of your life. It's where you gain biblical literacy, all right? And please hear me. We're not around here for biblical, like biblical literacy for biblical literacy's sake. We're here for biblical literacy for life's sake, all right? Because it makes all the difference in your life. So, so read your Bibles, all right? But read them realizing that It's the words of your father and king guiding you home. And I think for me and for many of us, a prayer might be, Father, create in me a hunger for your word. Help me to want to want to come to know you and your word and your power. You are quite wrong. That's the final words of our text. Jesus says to them, you are quite wrong. In case maybe they had missed it up until this point. Um, Consider what it was like for Jesus to have that debate. We know that just a few chapters earlier in Mark 9, he had actually told his disciples, hey, these guys are going to come after me, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise in three days. Jesus isn't confused about the resurrection. He actually knows it's coming up. You see, Jesus, Jesus doesn't just give the answer. Jesus is the answer. And for you and for me and for this week in every age and area and stage of life, we need him and his word and his resurrection power. Pray with me.
Gracious Father, we are thankful that you have not left us to ourselves. Though we forget, though we wonder, though we are prone to leave you, time and again you pursue us. You sent your Son to come, the Word made flesh, the resurrection and the life, that we might be in a relationship with you, be united to Christ, and experience his power and his goodness. This day, would you impress that upon our souls? Would you impress that deep into our hearts that we might live in light of that reality in, uh, in our friendships, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.